Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 28 and part 2 of the interview with Jeff Sanders from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Jeff Sanders has built his horsemanship on a tradition that goes back six generations or around 170 years in his own family. And in this episode, we will pick up right where we left off. So if you haven't heard part one of the interview yet, I really encourage you to start there. But what happens is I think that we, I think we all kind of, like you said, we want that partnership, but that partnership takes a level of commitment and a level of patience. And sometimes that commitment and that patience can be distracted by other things and other people in the way they think about their horses and their riding. So for instance, I know for a lot of people, you know, if, if you're keeping your horse at a barn where there's a lot of show people, a lot of people who are showing and that's their focus it's hard not to let that affect you in a certain way. Um, we are subconsciously, we, have, um, we are very good at learning by observation, both good and bad. <laughs> and I see this a lot. Um, as I'm teaching, as I'm traveling around the world teaching clinics, what happens a lot of times is I teach in a place and then I don't come back for another year. And I just had this last year, one of the clinics one of the girls, uh, she'd ridden with me several times before. She came in, she started war warming up before she rode, and I could tell right away that she had changed barns and she was riding in a show barn. Her, her riding changed completely. She, was com she wasn't even aware of it. But it's because of how everybody around her rode. She changed the way she was riding without even knowing and realizing she did it. And it changed the dynamic between her and her horse because it became more about perfecting certain maneuvers rather than working together to get as good a quality of movement, um, health, all of that stuff as they could. Um, and it's tough. It's, it's, it's a tough journey to build that partnership. And it takes the right relationship between the horse and rider. Um, it has to, the, the relationship has to fit. The communication between the two people have to match. The personalities have to match if you're really trying to get that kind of partnership that so many people dream of. You call it a tough journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we also talk about what you get out of it? Oh, yeah. It's when it's all right, when it all falls into place, it's, it, makes it makes all the rest of it worth it. But it's it's like with any relationship, when you think about it, I mean, any relationship requires work. It's You don't get it for free. Um, it, human relationships, couples, that kind of thing. But then there's those moments where it's like, that's just amazing. And it makes all the rest of the, all the rest of the hardship and the learning and the failure and the success and all of that worth it. And that's, that's one of the beauties for me of horsemanship is that it's a hard journey, but the, it's a, it's a never-ending journey of exploration and learning and improving, and it's it's constant improvement. And this is where some people get frustrated because they want they want to get it right, and they want to get it as perfect as they can. But the reality is, you've got two animals who don't have a common communication 
who don't even have a common way of thinking and looking at the world. And now we're trying to make some kind of perfect partnership. Yeah, that's, it's a tough journey. It's a tough journey because we don't, a lot of times we forget horses don't think like people. They don't communicate like people. And now we're trying to get the horse to work with us in this dance and follow our lead in this dance and make all of this work when we're still trying to figure out how to even get them to understand what it is that we're trying to ask them to do. But once they do, and then when it starts to come together, then it's amazing. Yeah. But again, sometimes it's also personality driven. The wrong personality types, horse and rider, put together, that makes the journey way harder. And sometimes it's just not going to work. The partnership just doesn't work. It's, it's just like human relationships. Sometimes they work great. Sometimes they don't. Just like jobs. Sometimes the job's great. Sometimes after a while you realize that it's not a good fit. Same idea. Um, and with the horses, it's the same thing. Depending on what, where you're going and what level you're trying to reach, how that relationship fits can make a big difference in whether you get to that, whatever that dream is or not. Yeah. And it's also a question about building your character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, we bring our baggage to the arena, uh, unfortunately. And, and uh, there's been times when I've had to tell people, hey, leave, leave your baggage out on the other side of the gate. I, I don't want to see it in the arena because your horse doesn't need it. But it's still there. Whether we want it to be or not, it's still there. And it's, it's, this is where, as we're working with these horses, the, one of the hardest parts for a lot of people of the horsemanship is not the horse. It's, it's themselves. It's the, the internal dialogue. It's the emotional control. It's the understanding ourselves well enough to even say, you know what? I'm not even going to go to the barn today because I'm not in the right mind, mind frame to do it. I, I'm not riding that horse. I'm not riding today because I know that if I get on that horse, I'm going to create a problem. Or to know yourself well enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to try to teach anything new to my horse today or school anything today. I'm just going to go right out through the forest. And I'm just, and I don't care. I don't care. As long as my horse, you know, as long as we're going at the speed I want to go and the direction I want to go, I don't even care. I'm just going to go relax and ride. And then there's other days where you're like, you know what, I'm going to work my stuff and I'm going to work on the skill sets that I'm trying to practice and everything's great and it's working really well. Awesome. But that's not going to be every day. And the reality is that we're going to bring our stuff to the arena and it's our job to make sure that our horse never has to deal with our emotional, psychological, mental, whatever it is, things that we're dealing with, our horse shouldn't have to deal with that. And if we're not in the right mind frame, then a horse shouldn't even see us. And when we think about it, one of the things people forget is that you're training your horse from the moment your horse knows you're there. That's it's people forget how much influence they have over the horse. So my stepdad, as an example, he purposely does not feed his horses at the same time every day because he said sometimes on Sunday he wants to sleep in. And if he see, feeds them every day at 6.30, guess what's going to happen at 6.30 Sunday morning? The horses are going to be saying, hey, it's time for food. So he varies that. So the moment your horse knows you're there, you're having an influence on that horse. And your mind frame, you know, where you are mentally, where you are emotionally, that's going to affect that horse no matter what. And for me, I think it's really important that our horse doesn't have to deal with any of our negative stuff. 
So if I'm having a bad day, if I'm sick or I'm, you know, whatever it is, if I'm not in the right mindset, I, I, I just won't even go work with my horses. Um, at the most, you know, it's like, okay, maybe go clean the stall. But even then, depending on where we are mentally, that's going to have an effect on the horse. Yeah. So when you travel around the world as a trainer mm -hmm. and um, you have a pupil showing up, yeah. not having their best day, mm -hmm. how do you handle it? It's really going to depend on the person. One of the things that I look at is most of the time for the rider and the horse, when we are working and we're working on, on teaching the horse different things, we're putting the horse and the rider to work. So let's say we're, we're working on shoulder in or we're working on half pass or whatever it is. As we start moving and, you know, stop, do rollbacks, that kind of thing, and we start focusing on the work, it tends to change the mindset where they're able to get into the work and through the work, we change the mind. And the same thing with the horses, because the reality is there's some days I go catch my horse and I'm like, my horse is also not in the mood today. And I am, and we need to now see how much we can accomplish. But by working and 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 putting the horse to work and, and trying to work on some skills, we can use that movement of the body to try to focus the mind. So this is one of the things that, like in the old California horsemanship, that we get the mind by moving the body. And by getting the horse, we get the horse with us by getting the horse to move where we're asking them to move. So if I'm getting the horse to move off of my leg, they're focused on my leg, they're focused on me, they're focused on what I'm, I'm asking them to do. And it's the same thing with the riders. Um, but there are times, I've had times where, I remember one in particular, um, I was teaching in Australia and the lady was having a bad day. And her horse wasn't doing what she wanted, and she was absolutely in tears. And I just said, "Just go, just go sit at, sit at, uh, sit by that tree. Give me your horse." And I got on him, and I just rode him around while I was teaching, and I just let her sit by the tree. Um, and and I told her, "When when you're ready, you come back, and I'll give you your horse back. But until then, just go sit at the tree." And one of the other people said, "Oh." You, you you don't care that she's over there crying? And I said, it's not that I don't care, but I'm riding her horse and I'm getting her horse away from that because the horse's job isn't isn't to deal with that. The horse isn't her therapist and it does shouldn't be and the horse doesn't need to deal with that, mo that negative emotional energy. So I took the horse out of the environment, split the two up. She dealt with her stuff. When she dealt with her stuff, then she got her horse back and she was fine. And it was good. And I, I tried to make it really clear. It's that, you know, it's not that I didn't care that you were crying. It's that I cared more that your horse didn't have to deal with that negative stuff. So that's kind of an extreme example of that. Then I get really curious about people who use the horse as a therapist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think horses are wonderful tools in, in, in terms of um, rehabilitative therapy for disabled children and that kind of thing. Horses have an amazing ability to read people for good and bad. So when um, I, have, I, I, I have a number of people that I know that do the rehabil rehabilitative therapy for children. Um, in the U.S., I've got a good friend that does it with uh, veterans who have trauma from war, that kind of thing. Um, I know one guy that was you, they were doing a program where the prison was, they were working with the Mustangs. 
Um, that's a different kind of emotional energy than somebody who is emotionally distraught or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and when we're looking at this, if you are doing that, it takes a very special kind of horse. And one of the big problems I see is people using the horse as that therapeutic kind of, or that's what they're trying to do. But the horse's personality is not the kind of personality that can deal with that. That horse's energy is not the kind of energy that can be helpful in that kind of circumstance. And the problem is that sometimes those people fall in love with that horse that has the wrong kind of personality for that kind of environment. And then it's a train wreck. It's an absolute train wreck. Um, because then we get the negative energy or the, the however, what, however you want to say it. Um, and that clashes with the horse's energy and then it's just an explosion. Yeah. Um, and that can be, that can be bad, but you get the right kind of horse. That's a whole different story. And then it, it can be amazing, especially with the kids. I've seen some of the stuff with the kids. It's just amazing. But again, it takes the right kind of horse. And the people that do that therapeutic, therapeutic riding are very specific about the kind of horses they get for that reason. Yeah. So um, I also would like to talk to you about this weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, I have the pleasure of watching you for the first time, working with several different students. Yeah, it was a good group. It was a good group. Yeah. Uh, and it was also very interesting to to see, you know, hi the hints of your philosophy on the way you work with horses. Mm -hmm. And there were some specific aspects that I would like to talk to you about. Cool. Um, um, the first thing was uh, what you said about the seat. Okay. And you, uh, to give it a few keywords, mm -hmm. uh, it had to do with um, the weight of the rider's head. Yeah. And how to or where to put the weight in the stirrups. Okay. Yep. Could you elaborate? Yeah. Um, one of the things a lot of people don't think about and don't realize is that when we're riding, we're up above the horse. So every little movement of our body is magnified to the horse. So if you think about it, you put a small child up on your shoulders, same idea. If they lean, if they move, it has a bigger impact on you than it does on the child because the child is up above you. Um, same thing when we're riding. So it, let's say we're riding and we look down. Our head weighs about 10% of our total body mass. As we look down, we put that weight down over the front end of the horse. So that's like putting a bowling ball in the horse's withers and expecting them then to work in good athletic movement. Um, when we're riding in our, our balance and our seat, um, I really focus on making sure that my seat position is matching what the horse is doing. And I want my balance to match the horse's balance. I don't want the horse to have to compensate for me being out of balance. It's my job to follow the horse's balance, not the horse's job to follow my balance. And this is where it gets very difficult for a lot of riders because our balance as a human being is very different than the horse's balance. Um, we have a vertical balance. We have that, up and, that straight up and down vertical balance where the horse has a horizontal balance. And the two are very different in how they work together. So it's my job to follow the horse's horizontal balance, not the horse's job to stay vertical with me. 
And we're hardwired to stay vertical. Our, our brains are hardwired from the time we're little kids to stay vertical. The horses don't move that way. Quadrupeds move differently than bipeds. And I have to work on matching my balance to the balance of the quadruped movement. Um, and that can be very difficult for a lot of riders because it's not intuitive. And what happens is as the horse is moving, we feel out of balance because we are trying to think like a human rather than thinking where the horse's balance is. An example of that is anytime the horse has a bend in their body and they're moving, let's say they're bent to the left, their balance is going to be on the left side, no matter what they're, what they're doing. Whether they're moving to the right or they're moving to the left, if they have a left bend, their balance is on the left. But sometimes it can feel like as they're doing a circle, like, oh, but the balance is on the outside of the circle. Now the horse's balance is, if the balance, if the horse's balance is on the outside of the circle, the horse is out of balance. That's when they fall out of the circle. That's when stuff like that happens. So I try to keep my seat on the inside of that balance. The other thing is if a horse stumbles, if they're on bad ground, if we're on ice, anything like that, if I'm a little out of balance with the horse, it makes it much, much harder for that horse to recover from that stumble or whatever it is. Um, and also biomechanics, the way the horse moves. When I'm sitting, if I sit on the left side, the rib cage of the horse will move away from my seat. So if I want the horse to bend to the left, if I'm sitting on the left seat, that will help that bend. If I want the horse to bend to the left, but I'm sitting on my right seat, it's going to push the rib cage into the direction that I actually want the horse to bend, and that means now I'm getting in the horse's way. So when we look at just the basic biomechanics of it. And with the weight in the stirrups? The weight in the stirrups, I, I play a little bit with the weight in the stirrups, but most of the weight distribution and change and signal is actually coming from my seat. But when I am putting weight in the stirrups, one of the things I want to be careful of is that I'm not pushing weight down into my heels. Um, that is for very beginning riders to keep them from going into fetal position or bouncing or that kind of stuff. Um, I want the weight in the balls of my feet. Everything that we do as human beings, athletically, we keep the weight in the balls of our feet. Riding is no different. If my weight is down in my heels, I create tension in my legs And it's harder than for me to make small micro adjustments to my weight and my balance. If my weight is in the balls of my feet, I can relax my legs and I can make those small micro adjustments a lot easier. So I know everybody's taught from the very first lesson, put your heels down. Um, I don't ride that way. I want my feet kind of more flat, more flat in more of like a position like if I was standing. And you'll, one of the places you'll see this is if you watch Spanish riders. They have very wide, flat stirrups. It's like standing on a platform. They don't ride with their heels down. They ride with their feet flat. Same idea. Okay? And you had um, uh, a very good tip about using video to improve your seats. Yeah. When you're riding in general. Absolutely. If you, if you want to know what's happening with your seat and your, your spine, Video going away from the camera. Most of the time, most people, their pants have a belt loop in the center of your back. And you can look at that belt loop in relationship to um, a lot of the saddles have a maker's mark or something in the back in the center of the saddle. So it's the relationship from your spine or your belt loop 
to the center of the saddle to the center of the horse's spine. And that should line up. So one of the things that I tell people to kind of visualize is that if your spine, when you're sitting on that horse, your tailbone, like when your spine goes down, your spine was able to go straight down and connect into your horse's vertebra, how would you move? Um, where would you, where would your body move with that horse if your spine was directly connected? Um, and then as you video riding away, you'll see where your seat is. You'll see where your, where your balance is riding away from the camera, looking at yourself from behind. Um, if you want to take that to an extreme, if you take like a black, uh, sport shirt, like a spandex kind of sport shirt, and you just take chalk and mark down your spine. Mark across your shoulders, mark across the bottom of your last rib. You'll see a lot of changes in your body um, as your shoulders move, your rib drops, your spine bends. You'll see a lot of that as you ride when it's a little warmer than it is now. <laughs> Again, I apologize. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, I figured Norway and yeah, it'd be a little, little, little white. And you also had the rule of three. Yeah. Um, And this is something I didn't make it up. My, this is, comes from my dad, which probably comes from my great-grandfather, which probably, yeah. And basically, anytime I'm teaching a new skill to my horse, if we get it correctly three times in a row, for three days in a row, we own it. It's ours. Now it's maintenance. Um, and it's also uh, building the horse physically for that maneuver. So if we pick, I don't know, shoulder in as an example, because most people are familiar with it. If I'm teaching shoulder in and I get it correctly three times in a row for three days in a row and three steps, by the way. Um, so if I ask for shoulder in and I get three steps of shoulder in and I get that three times in a row for three days in a row, it's mine. I own it. The horse knows it. We've got it. Now, if I want more steps, I need to build that horse physically and strengthen their muscles to get more than that but I know the horse has it. And then once we've got it, we've got that skill, that skill now I'm going to, yes, I'm going to try to perfect it more and, and fine tune it, but it also becomes part of my warm up so that I know that I maintain it. Um, so then it goes into the, the, the maintenance category rather than the teaching category. It goes into maintenance and improvement rather than a new skill that we're working on. And there was uh, also in my notes the best way to kill collection. Arenas. Riding in, in the arena is the best place to kill collection. Um, because the horse know that knows they've got good footing. They know they don't have to think about where they put their feet. They know that if they put all their balance on the front end and they get lazy and they put all the weight on their forehand, they're not going to fall on their face. But if they're out in the forest, it's much harder. Um, the ground is uneven. We saw we went, the horses that we worked outside. Um, we worked a few horses outside today, and you would see that where the horses, if the ground was uneven, they would start to balance themselves better. Horses have ba three basic points of balance. One is with the weight more on the forehand. One is with the weight pretty 50-50 even balance, and the other is with the weight on the hindquarters. When we're riding outside of the arena, we're riding through the forest, we're doing that kind of thing, generally the horses are in a 50-50 balance or have the weight on the hind end. They don't have as much of a habit of dropping the weight onto the forehand. Having said that, if you have a horse's whole life was ridden in the arena, and that's something that, and they've been ridden with the weight on the forehand, like we see a lot of the modern Western sport horses, 
those horses can actually be dangerous to ride in the forest. They, they can be dangerous to ride outside on uneven ground, on bad ground, because they don't know how to balance themselves any other way. So there's some of the sport horses that um, I've been around that had um, you know, a pretty good career as a sport horse, as a, like a reigning horse or that kind of thing. I wouldn't take the horse to go work cows on because I would be afraid the horse would crash because the horse had no idea how to travel outside of the arena. There was also a question about, you know, with timing of aids, mm -hmm. uh, knowing the horse's footfall is yes. considered to be a very good way to, yes. to think when you're riding. Yes, yes. But you had a different approach. Yeah. The footfall, and we were talking about the Dorrances earlier and, and Ray Hunt, um, they were all very big on footfall. Um, I don't do footfall. I, I want to know where my horse's feet are, but that's not my focus. I focus on riding the rhythm of the movement of the spine the swing of the back. Um, and this was something, as a kid, my dad didn't teach footfall. Uh, he, it was like, yeah, you should know where the feet are, but that's not where my focus is. If I focus on footfall, I'm thinking about the placement of the foot. I'm riding in my head rather than riding in my body. I'm thinking about it rather than feeling it. So if I'm riding and I'm picking up the rhythm of the movement of the spine and the swing of that spine, now I'm riding with the feeling of the movement of the horse rather than thinking of the placement of the foot. The other is that the human mind subconsciously picks up rhythm. Um, you go to a music festival, the DJ can control the whole crowd just based on the rhythm of the music. So it's easier for that timing, that rhythm, to become a habit and to develop, to develop, to become subconscious if we're picking it up by using the rhythm of the movement of the horse like music. So it's like the rhythm of a song and we're moving with the song. It's like you hear music and your body starts to move with the music. If I think of the, the spine and the swing of the spine as that music, now it starts to become, become subconscious and I'm just moving with the horse without even thinking about it. Where if I have to do it with the footfall, I'm thinking about it rather than feeling it. And for me, when I'm working with cows and I've got a, a angry cow on the end of a rope, I don't have time to think about where's that right front foot. I, I just, there's no time. Um, if we're doing historical riding and we're fencing and we're fighting, sword fighting on horseback, somebody's about to hit me in the head with something, I don't have time to think about where is that foot placement. It needs to be subconscious. If I have to think about it, by the time I thought about it, it's too late. Um, and then the other thing that happens is as you develop that rhythm and that movement with the spine, you can tell when something's about to go wrong because that rhythm's going to change. So if I'm riding a young horse, a high-energy horse, a horse that might explode, that kind of thing, I can feel it earlier because I can feel the change of rhythm. And it's like, well, uh-oh, something's not right. I may not know what it is yet, but I know something's not right. And a lot of times it's not even conscious. I immediately am like, oh, I better get ready. How did you know that something was going to go wrong? Well, I could feel it. I didn't even have to think about it. It just starts to become subconscious. And we also talked about the use of hands. Yes, uh, and that we humans tend to, uh, whenever we encounter a problem, we tend to reach for a tool. Yeah, yeah. We're a tool-using species, and the rain is the tool. And unfortunately, that creates a lot of problems for the horses. Um, two 
of the students I've had over the last 15 years, there's two that stand out as being, I don't want to say the best, but they picked it up the quickest. One of them was a young man from um, Hungary. Um, some people listening to this might have heard of, uh, his name is Jolt Varga. He lives in Germany. Um, he was one of the top writers for uh, the Royal School in Bookerberg there. He's written with me quite a lot. He went to Nevada and he worked on one of the big ranches there. But he was raised in a martial arts school. His, his father is a martial arts instructor. So he knew where his body was. He knew where his weight was. Um, he knew how to feel the movement of that horse. Another one was um, a semi-professional dancer. She went from never having ridden to within a year of riding, she was riding with at the top, one of the top dressage schools in Spain because of being able to feel what was going on with that horse, with the rhythm and the movement of that horse. The key for them was that they were riding with their body. They knew where their body was, and they knew how to move their body, and they didn't rely so much on their hands. Um, where most people immediately go to the hands to try to make something happen. And one of the things we have to remember is that when we're using the reins, horses use their head and their neck to balance themselves far more than people realize or, or consciously think of. Again, because they, uh, they have that, that horizontal balance, their head and their neck affects it much, their balance much more than it does for us. If we're using our hands and our reins all the time, we're taking their head and their neck out of balance, which is then disrupting the balance through their whole body. And the other is that the more we use our hands, the more we take our body out of balance. So the more we move our hands and we move our arms, we shift our shoulders, which then translates all the way down into our seat, and the horse feels that. So the bigger the movements we have with our hands, the more it disrupts our balance as a rider, and the more it takes the horse out of balance as well. So for me, I think of... My reins control the head and the neck. They have some influence over the shoulder. From the front of my saddle back, all of that is controlled with my seat and leg. So if the body's going somewhere, it's not going somewhere I wanted it to go. If the horse's head and neck are, are looking in the right direction, but the body's not going that direction, it's not a rein problem. It's a problem of the seat and the leg. But most people try to fix that by pulling on the reins. And talking about pulling on the reins, it's also interesting to talk a little bit about bits. Yes. Um, bits are a huge subject. We could do five podcasts just on bits. I know. Um, <laughs> it's I, one of the clinics... I apologize. I, that's okay. One of the clinics I did in, in, um, in Australia, we did a whole day on bits. And at the end of the day, I was like, well, I got through about half of the material I, want, material I wanted to go through. One of the big things to remember about bits, no matter what kind of bit it is, it's a communication tool. And I want that to communicate as well as possible with my horse. It's not, I don't think of bits as a control tool. I think of it as a communication tool. Each horse's mouth is very unique in their conformation. They're built very differently. Um, so I would never recommend a bit to anyone unless I looked in the horse's mouth. And I would never put a bit in my horse's mouth by anybody's recommendation who hadn't studied my horse's mouth. We see this a lot where people say, well, this bit worked really good on my horse, so here you should use it on yours, which would be exactly the same as pulling the shoes off of their horse and trying to nail them on your horse. Yeah, it might work, but there's a better chance it won't. And there's so many factors that go into having the right bit. Um, the shape of the tongue, um, the shape of the bars, 
the roof of the mouth, how tall, how high the roof of the mouth is, uh, the placement of the teeth. Um, does is it a gilding or a stallion? So it has the canine teeth. Is it a mare? And maybe she has one uh, or two. Um, and where are they placed in relationship to the corner of the mouth? How high is the corner of the mouth? Uh, there's so many things we could get into with the bits. The most important thing is I want to make sure whatever I put on that horse's head, that it's not distracting the horse from listening to my other communication that I'm giving that horse with my seat and my leg and all of those things. So as I'm riding with any bit or any tool that I put on that horse's head, if it's distracting the horse, it's probably the wrong tool. Um, because again, it's about, it's about communication. And if it's distracting the horse, then it's taking away from the communication rather than adding to the communication. So if it fits correctly and we've got a good bit that fits correctly and we're using it correctly, it improves the communication. If the bit doesn't fit correctly, it's creating pain or discomfort, it is taking away from the communication and that's not what I want. And you also had that phrase where you said, uh, you said not tighter, but just closer communication. Yes. So which one, I thought was really a very precise way to put it in a way. Yeah, what we had is we had some of the riders that were riding on a little bit too long of a rein and the distance between their hand and the horse's face was too much. And I wanted them to ride with a shorter rein, but not a tighter rein. The amount of contact they had was fine. They didn't need any more pressure. In fact, more pressure would have been a bad thing. But their hands were up close to their body. Their hands were back by their saddle. And there was a long distance. There was a lot of rein between their hand and the horse. The longer the distance between your hand and the horse's head, the more amount of rein, the less communication. So I don't want it to be tighter, but I do want the hands closer. And I also want to ride where I just am like right really close to contact, but maybe a millimeter away from contact. So all I have to do is close my fingers to touch on that rein and communicate with that horse. I don't want to hold them all the time. I don't want to pull all the time, but I want to be close enough that I can just close my fingers and that horse is going to be able to feel that signal. I don't want to have a lot of slack where, you know, I've got to pick up a meter of rain before the horse feels anything. I want to be able to pick a millimeter up and have the horse feel that that signal. And you also said something that I really loved, uh, and that was, if you don't have forward, yeah, don't ask. You, you don't have anything. If you don't have forward, you've got nothing. So as I'm trying to shape things with the horses, again, I'll go back to shoulder and just because a lot of people are familiar with that. If I don't have good forward and that horse isn't moving freely forward, I'm not going to try to ask them to now move forward and sideways at the same time because we don't have forward. Um, if I'm trying to do anything, if I don't have that forward energy, I, I don't have anything to shape. I can't now shape any kind of movement with that horse unless first I have forward energy. And we see this a lot where people are working on collection, but they don't have any forward energy, and we don't really get collection, we get compression. So the horse is not really moving freely. They're just kind of being pulled into place and driven with the legs. And this is something that's very common in some of the, some of the sport riding. They say, hold with the hands and drive the horse into the bit. I don't need to do that. And if I've got good forward and the horse is thinking forward, I can now shape it without having to drive the horse into the bridle or into the bit. Um, just a side note, some people say, well, you have to do that to get the horse to balance. 
Um, yeah, they balance just fine out in the pasture when they're playing with the other horses without me on their back. And they can do everything out in the pasture balanced. They don't need me to balance them with my hands. So that's just kind of a side note on that. And you also made a point of people watching or, you know, paying attention to the horses when they are outside without yeah. the rider to yeah. kind of get the feeling of, you know, how they move their body and how they balance. Yeah, I think it's important to study horses' movements when they're not being influenced by a rider. And I think the best, if you, if you have the opportunity, is watch a bunch of young horses that have not been ridden. Yearlings, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, even if you can find some four-year-old horses that have not been ridden, and watch how they move naturally. Watch how they move when they're being athletic. Watch how they move when they're playing amongst themselves. Where is their balance? When they turn, how is their body shaped? Where are they turning now? As we watch that, then we ask ourselves, where would I sit? How would I ride if I was trying to ride that movement and stay out of the horse's way? And that will tell us a lot about how to ride that horse, where to, where to, where to move, when to move with that horse. And it also tells us that the horse doesn't need us to be able to do all of the stuff that we're trying to do. Um, I've watched bit video of horses doing very high level stuff, cantering in place, cantering backwards, um, doing pee off, all of that stuff without a rider on them. Well, if they can do it without us, then if they're not doing it, it's one of two things. Either they don't understand what we're asking, that's education, or we're in the way. That's it. The only other choice, and this does happen a lot, is that there's some kind of pain problem that the horse has, and then we need a good osteopath, that kind of thing, to work on the horse to eliminate that problem. I have one final question for you, Jeff. Okay. This is the signature question on this podcast. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I haven't warned you, so yes. be prepared. Um, what is the one most important thing you would like to emphasize uh, that you have learned through your journey with horses that you think it is really important that people who deal with horses knows? I think the, there's one word. It all comes down to one word. Why? Why am I doing what I'm doing? That's it. If I'm working with somebody, I take lessons. I, I teach, yeah, I make my living traveling around the world, world teaching, but I also take lessons to develop certain skills and stuff. I want to know why. Why... Why should I do this the way that somebody's saying to do this? Why should I ride this way? Is this improving my horse's health? Is this improving my communication? Why am I doing it? Too many times people do things with horses just because everybody else does it that way. Or, well, I just did it that way because my teacher said to do it that way. Or I did it that way because my neighbor did it that way. Or because that's the way I saw somebody else ride. To me, that's not good enough. The horses deserve better than that. I want to know why am I doing this this way? If it's not improving the horse's health and it's not helping that horse to develop better physically, mentally, emotionally, and all of those things, then I'm not going to do it. And if I'm working with somebody and they're telling me to do something a certain way and they can't explain why, I just grab my wallet and I run away. <laughs> um, but ultimately, for me, what it comes down to is, yeah, I want my horses to work at a high level. Yes, um, in the environment that I work in, sometimes it can be dangerous, so we have to have a very good partnership because I still work with dangerous cows. Um, I don't rope bears and I don't rope pigs anymore, but I still work with dangerous cows. Um, I want to ride my horse in a way that optimizes their health and their longevity 
my horse right now, um, uh, my six-year-old, I want to be riding him for another 20 years. Um, I want to be, I want to retire with my horses. Um, so why am I doing what I'm doing now? And is it helping me working towards those things or is it taking a different path? And if the answer to why is, oh, I want to win a pretty blue ribbon or a shiny belt buckle or something like that, that's not a good enough answer for me. Um, and this is why for me it's, it's important. Why do I sit where I do? Biomechanics. Why do I turn the way I do? Biomechanics. Why do I work the horses the way I do? It's not only physical, but it's also mental. So why? That's it. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Every horse, every horse owner should be like a four-year-old child. Why? Why am I doing it this way? Not only asking your trainers, but asking yourself, why am I riding this way? Why am I doing it this way? And is this helping me? And is more importantly, is it helping the horse? Because I think the horses, that, that's the least they deserve with all they have done for us through all of humanity. Um, honestly, the domestication of horses is probably the greatest achievement in human history. It's not the wheel. It's fire and the domestication of horses has had the greatest impact on human history. Those two things, much greater impact than anything else. The Native Americans didn't have, they didn't have the wheel. They had fire and horses. So I think the horses deserve the best that we can give them. And asking why all the time helps us to stay on that right path. Thank you ever so much for taking the time after a long weekend <laughs> of very good teaching, Jeff. No problem. No and, problem. And please, please tell me that you're coming back to Norway, even yeah. though it's, it is slightly cold. It's a little time. cold, but I've got wool clothes, so I'm okay. Yeah, okay. we're um, tonight, in fact, when we're done with this podcast, we're going to go ahead and set the schedule for next year. I'm but really glad to hear it. it was, it's been really inspiring. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, if you're back, uh, I'll be back too. Cool. It's been fun. Norway's a lot of fun, even though it's a little cold. Good group of people, good group of horses. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Perfect. Yep. Cool. Thank you. All right. You have just heard episode 28 and part two of the interview with Jeff Sanders from Canada Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. And if you identify with the ambition behind this podcast to improve horse welfare, and ensure all horses a good life when they are part of ours. Please review the podcast and share it. It makes a huge difference. I'm going to end this episode by thanking my composer, Fredrik Blom, my guest, Jeff Sanders, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.